Welcome to the Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast that shares Islander views and voices. I'm Kalani Regis, your millennial indigenous science nerd of a host. We are recording in the second week of June, 2020. Happy Pride Month to all of our LGBTQ plus indigenous Pacifica people. We have not forgotten you, though I do feel like I have spent 2020 basically in tearful or anxious solidarity. I'm sure you all feel the same way. Black lives still matter though, this will never stop. I would like to begin with the acknowledgement that I am recording on Guahan, Giislas Marianas, currently a territory occupied by the US. I am not from here, so I am a settler. Although I am Chamorro, it is still with respect that I occupy this land and space. Every episode starts with a quote from an indigenous person that resonates. Today's quote, language carries with it values which form the basis of a person's identity and thus acts as a memory bank of a people's experience. The power of language lies in the fact that culture is almost indistinguishable from the language that makes possible its beginning. Dr. Ken Cooper, professor of political science at the University of Guam, Chamorro and human rights activist, father, organizer, singer, aspiring voiceover artist? Have you heard him sing though? These are just the things I know about him. Shout out to Ken for existing. We need more people like you in the world. This quote resonates because this episode will be about language, our thoughts on it, and how it ties into how we see ourselves as indigenous Pacifica people. You will hear from Toa of Fiji, Timiti of Samoa and Tahiti, followed by a special portion of this podcast that speaks to many people like me, because we will be featuring Chamorro language enthusiasts from my home of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Tomas, Ginin Luta Zanguahan, Trini, Ginin Saipan, Andrew, Ginin Saipan, and me, Kalani Regis, also Ginin Saipan. Because you just cannot get enough of us CNMI people, you know? You see, language for us is an interesting and frustrating subject. Because I don't know if you realize this, Chamorros are among the longest colonized peoples in Oceania. The Marianas has been colonized since the 1600s and has never been free. So if other islanders would like to know what that looks like and how it has affected us, our language, our identities, please keep listening. I think this is a sad reality, but it also gives us a unique perspective to educate from our disadvantaged position. So this is very close to my heart. After that, we will end with a short discussion of an essay published in 2019 about using and viewing traditional dance as a means to connect with our past as well as communicate with the present. Also, I would like to make some announcements. Because we are committed to the cause of featuring a diverse range of perspectives, we will be asking for submissions to certain keystone topics from those who would like to be future contributors. Contributions on these topics will be featured as bonus episodes to whatever topic they concern. For example, today's topic is language. If you would like to contribute to this as well, reach out to us on Twitter or email us at oceanpodcast at gmail.com. 
and we will send you the link to get your voice and your culture featured on Deep Pacific. It is our mission that important topics such as identity, language, land, decolonization, and reclamation of our indigenous heritage be evergreen, meaning they will be constantly updated and always relevant and welcome for contributions from other Pacific Islanders. That being said, we will be keeping our regular schedule of new episodes every other Saturday Pacific Island time or Friday other time. I would also like to mention that we do have a website, which is deeppacific.org. I had incorrectly stated that it was a www website before, but it has come to my attention that the link doesn't work for that. I have no idea why. So please find us either on Twitter at deeppacificpod or at our website deeppacific.org. No www in front. Sainama Asi for your attention. Let's do it. Let's dive in. The driving question today, how much of my identity is shaped by my language? How much of it is shaped by my native or my indigenous language? How much of it is shaped by my colonizers' language or languages? Our last episode featured five Pacific Islanders speaking about their Pacific Islander identities. We had many people reach out to us to tell us what they thought and who they related to the most. And all of those messages reached the respective storyteller. So thank you for that kindness. I am so grateful. This episode, it only felt natural to move from the question of identity to tie it into our language. David from the Philippines said it very well when he said that many languages in the Pacific have the same or similar words due to us all being connected. Therefore, if our identity is determined in part by our language, it is only right that we explore how our language influences our identity. These topics are so deep and so dependent upon each other that it wouldn't feel right to group them together. We Pacifica deserve more than that. Our languages have been glossed over by our colonizers enough. We will honor our ancestors by spending adequate time on this topic, this time, and whenever we feel it is relevant to topics we may cover in the future. Today, however, we will be discussing how we relate to our languages, whether they be our colonizers' language or languages, in Tamiti's case, our indigenous or heritage languages, or the languages in addition to those which we had to learn to survive and compete in the modern age. Today, you will hear from Toa of Fiji, who you heard from in the last episode on identity. He continues in a similar fashion in this episode, noting that the Itoke, or indigenous Fijian people, have a language which has experienced a different colonization, which preserved language, and this keeps his people rooted to the land. You'll also hear from Tamiti of Samoa and Tahiti again as well. Tamiti is also multilingual, and her perspective as a teacher of one language to children in France, while she speaks another language, is one that will have you thinking. In these stories today, you'll hear the effects that over 350 years of colonization had within one culture, the Chamorro culture specifically, from four different perspectives. I am one of the four you will hear from. As I mentioned before, I am Chamorro, so this topic really is important to me, to say the least. Another one is a graduate student studying language, Tomas. Tomas is a first-time contributor who has much to say about the elevation of language among indigenous people throughout the Pacific. 
Our other first-time contributors, like me, are both from Saipan. Andrew is a writer who has published stories and essays on Chamorro societal issues and is also a playwright currently working on a book of legends. Can't wait to see it, Drew. Trini is a Chamorro from Saipan as well, living on Guahan, who has also written about her struggles with the language and is actively trying to reclaim her indigenous language to connect more deeply with her culture, as we all are, as we all should be doing. I hope you enjoy these perspectives as much as I did when I first heard them. Rain on the rooftop versus water from the tap. Fire from the lobo or umo versus flame from the stove. Wind from the fan versus a breeze on the land. Sand from the beach and sand from the playground. When you think of all this, think of each and every one in its own turn. Think about each and every element in its home space. What's the difference, you might ask? Personally, I think it's freedom versus control. Each of the above element speaks in a manner that creates inspiration. But when brought under control, to me, this brings forth emotions of sadness. For why would you tame that which wasn't meant to be free? <laughs> the tongue of men sets us apart. Intonation and articulation, they say, would show you how the people survived. Survived their lands, survived the oceans, and how instead of fighting for eternity, they learned to live together. Not as us versus them, but as of a noir. Our tongue tells our story, just as the waves crashing on the rocks tells us how the seas sometimes fights with the land on issues pertaining to borders, <laughs> or perhaps the gentler sounds it makes on a beach when they've reached a compromise. Although, of course, multilingualism is a skill to be proud of. The kindling of inspiration is always found at home. Like a chain around my neck, I speak English fluently and think I am something until I realize that the chain tightens every time I speak When the chain is loose, I speak so well that on the phone you'd think I'm a pearl, yet in person you'd find that I'm of the rare color of that species. Emotions seem dull in this second language, but more fierce and unbridled in my own. Words such as Vanua and Zimbi seems to lose value when I translate it. Even now I can't bear to do so. But ask your Fijian friends, especially the Itoke. <laughs> Itoke, we are supposed to be part of the Vanua, but how can we when we don't know what we own? We are like the long-lost heir in a drama where they don't know about their fortune and yet all they need to do in order to get it is step up and claim it. And now we're claiming it a little at a time. 
slowly do we realize the heirloom we've got a right to and what's the first step to fully claiming it you say so of course <laughs> our fijian poet toa has struck again i hope you all know that when i call toa a poet it is about 60 percent playful teasing but it did get very deep there for a second he describes the difference in language, identity, and culture between freedom and control. Because colonization is control. During times where indigenous people were first controlled, instead of fighting constantly, although they did put up some really great fights, our ancestors had to learn to live together with them, hold the land by holding their tongue. It's so sad to think about that sometimes even just within a few generations of colonization, you lose so much history, so much language, and thus so much culture when parents hold their tongue. Toa says, Our tongues tells our story, just as the waves crashing on the rocks tells us how the seas sometimes fights with land on issues pertaining to borders, or perhaps the gentler sounds on the beach when they've reached a compromise. When it comes to language, Thinking about what Toa said, those sounds on the beach to me are like our ancestors holding their tongues, reaching that compromise to survive. Because we would not be here if all of our ancestors did not in some way care about their survival and thus our survival. He also mentions how words such as vanua, which means land, and vimbi, which is like a war cry or a challenge, seems to lose value when he translates it to English. Even now, as I translated it myself, it lost value. I could never understand that intrinsic value if that is not my culture. But being that my own culture has words, similar words, such as tanu for land and sponta for challenge, I can understand that value. Many words lose their value when translating it because colonizers' culture erases all of that value, which is why language revitalization goes hand in hand with cultural revitalization. You need the language to truly learn the culture. And you'll hear more later about how some people in a culture assign certain definitions to words to keep them alive. Sainama Asitoa for your beautiful perspective. Yaurana, talofa. Bonjour and hello. It's Timiti again. So, in my opinion, um, well, language establishes a group's existence. Without a language, without a Tahitian or Samoan language, we'd lose ourselves. We'd lose our identity. Language establishes existence. Our existence as Tahitians or Samoans. Language, to me, is place-making, group-making, culture-making, philosophy and ontology. It expresses a group's way of thinking on a semantic and grammatical level. It establishes strong connections to place and people. So that's one of the reasons why I truly and honestly want to level the pre-established hierarchies, linguistic hierarchies in my brain, where English and French totally dominate over Tahitian and Samoan. Languages in which I find solace, especially in the words of Finua, which means land and everything that has to do with nature, because it's just so powerful in that way. And you find extraordinary things in the smallest of words, even Yaurana. Yaurana means hello, but when you translate it, it means may life be with you. 
when you actually really translate the word, you kind of get a grasp of the Tahitian philosophy in that way. Yeah, I think language is really important and needs to be preserved and revitalized when on the brink of extinctions. So that's one of the reasons why I need to live up to my ancestors' existence. I also wanted to say that, in my opinion, indigenous languages, Tahitian and Samoan in my case, establish our existence, uh, establish a sense of place, a sense of culture. But English and French, to me, are extremely political in the sense that not only can indigenous populations subvert those languages, but we can also use them politically. The better we know how to use them, the better we can help our islands out and effect change from the inside. Basically, language can be poetry, artillery, extremely political. And in my case, I've chosen to be an English teacher in the French system for a very specific reason. I want to inspire my students to view English as a communication tool to be used in Oceania, where English dominates. I want to have them see Oceania as a beautiful region they can preserve, protect and serve as they grow into full-fledged adults and warriors for the region, for Fenua, Tahiti, but mostly for Oceania as a whole. We need our youth to fully understand that they're a part of a sea of islands. Oh yes, I did forget to mention that I do have an accent when I speak English. You probably have noticed, haha, <laughs> it's not a surprise. And I do have an accent when I speak French and my students make sure to ask me religiously at the beginning of every teaching year when they don't know me, Madame, where are you from? Your accent, it sounds so nice. You sound so nice. You don't sound like a Parisian French or just a French from mainland France. You sound softer and your accent is kind of solar. And to that question or kind of statement, I always reply, there's a lot of sunshine in Tahiti, in, <laughs> in the Pacific. All right. So now you've heard from Tamiti of Samoa Tahiti. Tamiti mentions Fenua, which means land, which sounds like Vanua in Itoke, the indigenous Fijian language. It was the word that Toa mentioned and which I love to hear. For her piece, Tamiti holds up the word Yorana, which means hello, but which actually means may life be with you in her language. And she mentions that being a Tahitian and knowing that word emphasizes the word's true value to her. Words like these really show the importance and value of being an indigenous person and knowing words in your own language. It makes you want to be thankful for your culture, doesn't it? Another point made, she says, indigenous languages establish our existence, a sense of place, a sense of culture. But for her, English and French are political and can be used politically to help our islands affect change from the inside. Language can be poetry. It can be artillery. I personally think it is definitely both and then some. Poetry is the language of the suffering, I feel. And as we suffer, we write. As we suffer, we express ourselves. I think it is important that these expressions make their way through our society and upwards. After all, 
Change is started by ripples that create waves in Oceania. Many are afraid of change too, and we acknowledge that. I myself have certain stances in which I feel need to remain unchanged for the betterment of our cultures. But regardless, some things are in need of updating, and among this is revitalizing our indigenous cultures through language. Unfortunately, Oceania is an English-dominated region of the world due to colonization, and you will hear later from other perspectives that share similar views that even while reclaiming your native tongue, you do not need to have full fluency to pick your islands up and effect change. I think it's beautiful when indigenous people speak with an accent in their colonizer's language because it shows that even while under control, even while using a new language, some of that indigenous language will always seep through, whether you are fluent or not, and that's beautiful. Sainamaositamiti for your entertaining and beautiful perspective as a Samoan Tahitian English teacher in France. Thank you for teaching us. Half a day, everyone. My name is Tomas, and I would like to begin by giving Kalani Undunkuluna Sidus Maasi a very big thank you for inviting me to participate in today's episode regarding the topic of language, and more specifically, the languages of our indigenous cultures here in the Pacific. As a graduate student conducting research on my heritage language, today's topic is one that I constantly talk about with my friends, my family, and basically anyone that I meet. It's honestly a conversation starter that I always rely on. But because I come from two languages, this topic has always been a constant force in my life. It has followed me from when I was a child all the way into my adulthood, as well as as this point right now in which I am conducting my own research on my heritage language. See, the thing that fascinates me about language is basically what Dr. Cooper's quote today said, which is that language has this ability to help us perceive our reality as well as help us look at how we see ourselves. And for the most part, I like to think that a great deal of my identity is shaped by my heritage language. But I also have to acknowledge the fact that the reality might seem that English plays an even larger role in how I shape my identity. And so before I begin, for those of us who are unfamiliar with some of the terms I'm about to use, let me just clarify some of them so you can gain a better understanding of how I perceive language. Chamorro is my heritage language, or in other words, it's the language of my people that I've learned at a later age. It is the language of my parents and my grandparents, and it is the language that is spoken at home or in other social contexts, such as church gatherings, family gatherings, holiday gatherings, etc. However, my heritage language is not the operating or dominant language of the Mariana Islands. The dominant language is English, and it's been this way for the last century. This is why many Chamorros like me speak Chamorro as a heritage language because we were taught English in our schools and it was promoted by our parents as well as everyone in the society that we had to learn how to speak English. English was viewed as a language of economic opportunity. So our parents trying to set us up for a better future thought that it would be better if we learn how to speak English better and they didn't really care to teach us our heritage language, their native language, their first language, the language of our culture that they speak that we don't speak. 
But generally speaking, though, I feel like the core of my identity is shaped by my heritage language. For example, the main driving force in my life is the Chamorro concept of Inafat Malik. And for those of us who don't know, Inafat Malik is a term that we use to describe our culture in which we strive for harmony or we strive for interdependence. It's all about everyone within the community coming together to promote harmony, keep everything at peace, etc., etc. For example, because I'm an academic person, there are many terms and concepts that I use that aren't readily used in Chamorro. But on the other hand, English helps me understand the world when Chamorro falls short. There are many terms and concepts that I use that I readily understand in English. I'm pretty sure I can relate all these things I'm learning into Chamorro and relate it to a Chamorro person, but there would be a lot of borrowed words and it would seem as if I'm mixing two or more languages and it would almost seem as if I shouldn't have even began to explain it in Chamorro. So for clarity's sake, I keep my Western knowledge in English and I keep my indigenous knowledge in Chamorro. However, I also feel that I am at this point in my life where I am finding the balance between the two and I'm learning how to speak more in Chamorro, think more in Chamorro, even about my Western concepts, even about all these academic things that I'm learning in life. Because at the end of the day, if I am not able to relate what I'm learning in English to a Chamorro person, then what is the use? You see, there are a lot of Chamorros like me who grew up around the language. It was spoken to us constantly. So naturally, we were able to understand the language perfectly, except maybe for very specialized words. There were a few of them, you know, like some that are probably specialized for hunting or for weaving or for making traditional medicine. Other than that, I was also pretty good at reading and writing. Reading and writing to me was transferable from English, like Speaking English is very different from reading and writing it. I feel like reading and writing is much simpler than actually speaking. That's just in my view. However, because we never really practiced speaking tomorrow, we would reply in English. And again, this goes back again to how our parents thought that we should be speaking in English. It wasn't until I entered adulthood that I started to seriously question my ability to speak. I always thought that I was okay because I understood the language. However, I soon realized that this thinking will not assist me in keeping my heritage language from dying. So I started consciously choosing to speak Chamorro to my parents. And at this point, my speaking skills are still not at a level that I am happy with. But I can definitely say that I see so much improvement in my speaking skills since I've started to actually actively choose to speak in Chamorro when the situation presents itself. Because not all the time am I going to be able to speak in Chamorro. But with my parents, that is one interaction in which I can control that. And I can speak in Chamorro as much as I want. But of course, when you're practicing, there's always that possibility that someone who speaks better or more fluently will make fun of you for how you speak like make fun of your pronunciation or tell you that you're using the wrong word. At first, like everyone in this situation, I felt discouraged for even trying. But then I told myself that I would not let anyone discourage me from reaching this goal that is way bigger than me. I guess you can say I learned to look past the teasing and focus specifically on listening to how I was being corrected. 
So for any of you out there who feel like you don't want to learn because you don't want to be teased or you've already tried and you've already, you know, you've been discouraged, just ignore their laughs, honestly. This is something that I had to actively work at to just ignore what they were doing. Because in Chamorro culture, Cassie is, it's a concept of teasing. And it's like this playful behavior that we have. But then some people can take it too far or some people might not be able to accept jokes or teasing as readily as other people. I want to stress that you should walk away from these kinds of experiences with something positive so you don't dwell on the negative. And it was from these interactions that I learned to acquire a more native accent. Speaking of accents, what most people don't know is that there are many ways to speak Chamorro. And by this, I mean there are different dialects of our language that are specific to different islands. For example, when native Chamorro speakers from Guam hear me speak, they automatically ask me if I'm from Rota or if I'm from Southern Guam because they can hear my accent. See, one of the biggest differences between Guam and Rota dialect, and pretty much what separates Rota from the other islands in terms of dialect, is the way we pronounce the letter A. In Chamoru, there are two ways of saying the letter A. There's the first A, which is like the A in cat, or the second A, which is like the A in father. For speakers of the Rota dialect, we will almost always use the A as in cat, instead of using the A as in father, which is more commonly used in Guam and Saipan. The only time you'll hear us use the A as in father is when meaning is affected. For example, there are two words in Chamorro, Baba and Baba. Baba tells you to open, Baba tells you it's bad. So in this instance, using the correct A will determine what you're trying to say. So this is one instance where Chamorros would use the A as in father, but most of the time... The Chamorros in Rota would use the A as in cat. This is just how I've heard it most of my life. You know, as someone who's been around the language, not just in Rota, but in Guam as well. And from different speakers, from Tinian or Saipan, like, I hear all of them. And I pay attention carefully to how people are saying things. Like, me as a student studying this language my heritage language, I need to be very alert to these things. This is just one of the many characteristics that I love about Chamorro. Another aspect that I love, and it's probably the same for all languages, is that there are many words in Chamorro that don't have a straightforward or single word translation into English. For example, the word matapang is readily understood by any Chamorro. We encounter this word often, especially when we are acting unfavorably. For example, if you were to ask a Chamorro to translate the word, you probably get different variations of this word means to be silly or to be easily upset. Words like these are the reason why many people see things differently because this word is deeply entwined within the culture. For Chamorros to act in a way that is deemed silly or overreacting is a negative trait. So therefore, the people came up with a word to name that concept. By doing this, it keeps that concept alive in the people's consciousness as the new generations learn the language and learn what these concepts are tied to. One thing I also really find fascinating is that there are these different concepts in Chamorro that we don't have in the Western world. And that for anyone who tells you about the Chamorro language, they will tell you that there are a lot of Spanish loanwords, such as Cibesa for Cerveza or La Masa for La Mesa. But there are some words that Spanish didn't replace, such as our word for sibling, our word for brother or sister. 
In Chamorro, there is not a word specifically to refer to a brother or to a sister, but there is a word to refer in general to someone who is a brother or a sister to you. Our word for that is telu. If you want to be more specific, you can add in words that identify gender. For example, Palawan is a girl. So you could say Teluhu na Palawan that says my sibling who is a girl or in shorter terms, my sister. So this is one thing that I really appreciate about the language is that there wasn't, to me, it seemed that there wasn't this concept of gender or that there was a separation of sexes I mean, in terms of probably physicality and duties, yes, they probably did have a separation. But when we go back to how we say that language shapes reality and shapes how we perceive ourselves and the people around us, this to me shows that the Chamorro language, and by virtue of that, the Chamorro people didn't really have a, a concept of different sexes, like in terms of separating people. So that's something that I really appreciate. And to compound on top of that, I feel that the word Sina too, which is um, most people will understand it in a Catholic context, in a church context, because in today's context, we use Sina for Jesus Christ or for God in general. But I've also come to hear Sina be used not just by me and people within my generation, but within older speakers as well, is that Sina is a more general term for someone who is older than you. You know, someone who is of a fatherly or motherly figure, a parent figure, someone with authority within the community could be referred to as Sina. So like if I were to talk about my parents, I could refer to them as my Sina or in the plural form, Mañanahu. To me, these are things that the Spanish people didn't get rid of when they were here. This is something that English will not get rid of while it's still here. In today's context, there is a heavy push by some Chamorros within culture and language revitalization movements to get rid of all the colonial influence within our language. However, I, on the other hand, do not necessarily agree with this idea. I do believe that we should use as much indigenous words as possible. But I also feel that there are just some situations in which we cannot use an indigenous word because there is none. Therefore, we use the introduced Spanish word. For newer, more modern English words, I say we do with it the same way past tomorrow's did Spanish. We took the word and we made it fit our language's sound system. I believe the same can be done to English words. And it doesn't necessarily mean that by doing so, we are watering down our language or we're diluting it or we're getting rid of it. If anything, this is just the way of language. This is a natural language evolution. It cannot be stopped. And actually, it shouldn't be stopped. It should be encouraged. If English and other languages can borrow from each other, then why can't we? Why must Chamorros look at their language as if it's some monolith, as if it's on some pedestal that we cannot reach? But this is not the reality. The reality is our language is a living organism. We can use it. And then by virtue of that, it'll evolve. It is this kind of thinking that will keep our language from being stagnant from being doomed to death, to reside in the past instead of progressing with us. When we take these kinds of thinkings, 
and we apply it to our situation, we can see that these are active steps we can take to make sure that not only are we saving our language, but we're also promoting it. So to end today's talk, or at least my section, I just want to reiterate to anyone out there who wants to learn their heritage language that you should just keep trying. Never stop practicing. Thank you guys for listening. And once again, thank you to Kalani for having me. I would invite you at this moment to take a break. Now you have heard from Tomas Gininluta Zanguahan. Language has the ability to help us perceive our reality as well as help us look at how we see ourselves, is what he said. His identity is shaped by Chamorro, but he conceded that English plays a larger role than Chamorro. Many Chamorros learn the language at a later age because the dominant language is English in the Marianas and in Oceania. English is seen as the language of economic opportunity, as evidenced by what Tamiti said when she mentioned that we can leverage that politically, as well as from the first episode on identity, when David from the Philippines mentioned the exact same thing. Thinking about how Tomas mentioned they keep their indigenous language separate, but they also try to think of their Western or even academic knowledge in terms of Chamorro, in terms of our indigenous language. This is a strong way to reinforce language. And can you just stop for a second and imagine a world where we go to school as indigenous children, open up our science books, and find at least some concepts explained to you in your indigenous language? That would be the dream. That would be the game changer. Tomas mentions, It wasn't until I entered adulthood that I started to seriously question my ability to speak. I always thought that I was okay because I understood the language. I feel like many are like that. I definitely was like that. I had to move away and that was when I realized, oh my god, I suck. If you don't speak, you'll never know how bad you are at it. I learned the hard way. Tomas mentions the Chamorro concept of kasi. To kasi somebody is to tease them playfully. This is something I think every culture has a variation of. But when I was a kid, my dad was one of 11 brothers and sisters. And being so many, there were definitely uncles who would call me to their side and tease me. Younger Chamorros cannot refuse to come. That is incredibly disrespectful. So I was eight or nine. My uncles would call me to their side or I'd have to go to them when I paid respect, uh, which is to amen them. So we would arrive at family gathering and my parents would look at us and tell us, go amen everybody. My uncles would speak to me in Chamorro when I'd go to amen them and they'd ask me questions playfully, but I was young and I didn't know whether they were joking or not and I would say something that they thought was funny and they would all laugh and you know they were all drinking and eating chesa and then they'd laugh at me and I was thinking oh they're laughing at me and I would cry so many memories of me crying so kasi although Tomas makes it sound more playful was definitely somewhat traumatic being a kid but hey look at me now I feel like I can take criticism now a little better I don't know if it was because of that, but yeah. The goal of getting better at speaking Chamorro is too important for them to stop. And as it should be, 
I myself try to integrate speaking Chamorro or consciously think of concepts in Chamorro as well. I have even dreamed in Chamorro a total of twice in my life, hopefully many more to come. Tomas also uses the word matapang. He says it matapang. But I, as a Saipanese Chamorro, would pronounce it matapang because of that ah versus ah difference seen across the islands. That ah, just so you know, has a little dot or lona in Chamorro above the a, also known as a diacritic, which is an accent written above or below a letter to signify difference in pronunciation of that same letter. That word, matapang, for example, can be interpreted differently by different speakers because even across the islands, matapang is interpreted differently. Tomas says it is silly. I would say matapang to me means proud or haughty, like so proud that they feel that they're above you or superior to you. And for me, I also kind of assign matapang to a more of a feminine thing to me. I don't usually use it to describe guys, though I do sometimes. Tomas also uses the word saina, which I love that word because many younger Chamorros who are not into religion as much would prefer to use another word for the word thank you, which in Chamorro is sidzu asma'asi. Sidzu asma'asi translates to something around may the Lord have mercy on you. Sidzu is meaning the Lord, ma'asi meaning mercy, something like mercy. What younger Chamorros are opting to do now, and this includes myself, is we are re-indigenizing our language and decolonizing it by using Saina Ma'asi instead, which I've been using both in the podcast and in my general life, just depending on really on just how I feel. Sometimes I say Sizus Ma'asi because it just comes second nature to me and I grew up hearing it all the time. And sometimes I use Saina Ma'asi if I'm around younger people or if I'm extra thankful. Either one works. Sizuus Maasi can be for more of a conservative crowd because if you say Saina Maasi, some older Chamorros, especially in the CNMI where I am from, they will get offended. Also, Saina, because it kind of translates differently, as Tomas pointed out, it could mean Jesus or the Lord or it could mean an elder or an esteemed person, like a father figure. So when I say Saina Maasi, to me, it means may my ancestors have mercy on you or may my ancestors bless you. So Saina Maasi, Tomas, for your important view on the Chamorro language and identity. How much of my identity is shaped by my native tongue? How much of it is shaped by my colonizers' languages? When I hear the term native tongue, two definitions come to mind. The first is the language of a person's culture or ethnic group. And then the second is a person's first language, which may not match his or her cultural group. My identity is a combination of my native languages. The main language I learned growing up was English, and the language of the culture I live in is Chamorro. Do you have to consciously work towards fluency in your language? I am not fluent at all. If I'm in a room with my family and they're telling stories or instructing me on how to do something, I'll understand, reply in English, but if you hand me a poem and tell me to translate it, I'm not confident I'll, I'll get it, especially if I don't have an idea of what the poem's about. I have to actively learn tomorrow. Hearing it around me my whole life wasn't enough. 
it's not my fault I wasn't fluent in Chamorro growing up, but it is my fault now if I stay that way. Does your native language have words for emotions that can only be described in your language? One word that I can think of is magotdai. Now, in Chamorro, magotdai is when, for example, you see a little baby that you haven't seen in a long time and he's got really chubby cheeks, really chubby arms, really chubby legs, and then you all of a sudden get this this wave of emotion that tells you I have to pinch or bite this baby right now or I'm gonna lose it. That's what Magotdai means. And while it may seem a little weird, a lot of people do experience this emotion and in our culture a lot of people think that if you don't actually pinch the baby even just a little bit when you're feeling Magotdai, the baby will actually get sick. Has your language evolved through the years? What are your thoughts on that evolution? Uh, definitely our language has evolved, especially from the first Chamorros who came to the Marianas. Uh, we do not speak the same language now for sure. Uh, we have a lot of Spanish words. The CNMI has a lot of, uh, you know, kind of Japanese words sprinkled in. And we definitely do have a lot of American influence now, a lot of English influence and languages change, it's inevitable. It reflects how the people of the time change and while not everyone likes those changes, you know, they, they are there. And I do appreciate that people can kind of add their own flavor to the language that they're, that they're speaking. And I would definitely love if one day I am so fluent that I don't even notice things like this. Trini says, it is not my fault that I wasn't fluent growing up, but it is my fault if I stay that way. And that is the hard reality of being a Chamorro growing up after 350 years of colonization. It's that now, although you can hear the language growing up all you want, you actually have to make an active effort or somebody has to make an active effort in your life to force you to speak in Chamorro. And that's what I try to do with my Saturday classes that I take. And Trini is actually also in the class, so we are definitely making that effort. Tomas used the example of matoping for a word that is very distinctly Chamorro but could translate to different things. Trini, however, used the example of magotdai. Magotdai is definitely a very cultural Chamorro thing. I, I don't think I have heard it in other cultures very much, if at all. But I use this to my advantage. Every time I see a cute baby, I get magodai and I just want to pinch them. And I'm sorry, I'm going to pinch them. And it's, it's like a, a kasi for a baby. We start them off young, I guess. Trini mentions the evolution of our language to include Japanese words in the CNMI because the CNMI were colonized differently from Guam. My islands are the 13 northern islands of the Marianas, and Guam is the southernmost island in the Marianas. So CNMI Chamorros and Guam Chamorros actually have a very different history. And because of that, we also have slightly different language. My grandparents spoke Chamorro and Japanese as their native tongues as they were educated pre-World War II in schools that the Japanese had built in the CNMI for the locals. 
So the Japanese colonizer influence is seen in Chamorros from the CNMI and not in Chamorros from Guahan. This difference in treatment has also caused some tension between the Chamorros from the two places, which I would love to explore in a later topic. Make sure you bring your popcorn for that one. Sainama Asitrini for your short, sweet, and to-the-point view. So you have heard now the topic of language, specifically Chamorro language, from people who are both trying to reclaim their language. What makes it so hard to reclaim our language, though, is that the fundamental foundation of Chamorro culture actually works somewhat against learning the language when you're older, and that is the concept of shame and respect. I mentioned being kasid as a child and how when an older relative calls you to their side, you cannot refuse. Why? Because it is seen as disrespectful. You might be like, so what? Well, when you are disrespectful, this reflects badly on you and your family because you are bringing shame to your family. And CNMI Chamorros use shame very effectively to keep the younger generations in check. It does make me wonder if because we were most recently colonized by the Japanese, if this is a lingering after effect of that influence. Regardless, I also mentioned in the first episode being called Amerikanun Poasu, and I wanted to explore this a little further, which you will hear in my piece a tiny bit, but I think I'll let Andrew, who is also from Saipan, handle it from here. So, have I been called Puasu before? I absolutely have. Uh, it was maybe, maybe all those years ago when I was 14 by my grandma, of all people. And when she called me this, I gotta admit, it hurt. You know, there I was with my cousins, talking, hanging out, doing all this stuff. You know what teenagers do. And then my grandma heard us all speaking in English. And she, she basically said, you guys are also poasu, speak tomorrow, you know. And of course, I had to explain to grandma, well, grandma, I don't know how to speak tomorrow. But when she did it, it wasn't intentionally to hurt me. And it wasn't as a way to shame me. She just blurted out in a moment of frustration and just exasperation. You know, it's just that because this woman was so important to my life, I'm someone who can understand Chamorro pretty well. I speak what little Chamorro I can to my cousins, to my kids, you know, but my experience with speaking Chamorro and my fluency in Chamorro is limited. So that's about the only time that I can think of where someone has latently called me Poasu, but... You know, I mean, just listen to the way I sound. Do I sound Americano Poasu? I'm sure I do. And there have been aunties and uncles who have certainly made me feel that way, you know. But in terms of it affecting me, I'm trying to think of what that means. I want to say that I've always been cognizant that I don't sound like your typical Saipanese person, right? And obviously, when you say you're from Saipan, there's a certain kind of quality of voice that comes to mind, right? The, the typical Saipan accent is very, I want to say, it's like, it's like curt, it's like hard, it's like, 
harder than the other accents. You get what I'm saying? If I'm making sense, it's it's more nasally in a way to my ears. And that's, these aren't bad things. These are just my own observations is that going up and down the chain of islands, our accent sounds the hardest, maybe, or the, the glottal stops sound the most intense and those accents really accentuate if i'm making sense i think if you i think if you if you hear um to most speakers from here i think you'll understand right how did being or feeling poasu affect me hmm i guess for me i'll say that i held a lot of shame you know to be poasu certainly is a lot of shame now i want to be clear about something there are different ways to be poasu there's one where when you speak, you sound Americanized, right? Your Chamorro is off. And that's the context in which I felt Americano Poso is I felt like my accent or the way that I'm speaking made me less Chamorro, right? We have so much, I guess, like love and pride for our language, right? In one sense, we have so much love and pride for our language so that when you don't speak it, it's something shameful. It felt shameful for me. Which is really strange because for people who have so much love and pride for the language, there's a whole generation of people who chose not to teach Chamorro to their kids. It's really strange. We are that generation, right? Like our parents decided that we needed to speak English. And then when all we could speak is English, you know, they decided to call us Po'asu. It sucks. What can I say? That's the only way I can express it. Man, if I could change my accent, I definitely would. And there are times when I'm really angry, my accent comes out. And then, of course, right, like, I don't, although I feel like I sound Americano, when I hear actual Americans speak, I know I don't sound like those people. It's just a really strange situation to find yourself in where, on one hand, your parents did not teach you tomorrow, and then, on the other hand, that whole generation also shames you for not speaking Chamorro. Is what it is. I'm glad there are online resources where I can now teach myself Chamorro or learn Chamorro alongside those who did not grow up speaking Chamorro. But here's the thing with this whole conversation we're having about being Americano Poasso. If I were hypothetically to teach myself Chamorro, I anticipate that when I try to speak tomorrow, guess what they're going to call me? Po'asu, right? So it's like a never-ending cycle of feeling that I'm not as tomorrow as my parents or grandparents. Which is not true. Which is not, which is not a good thing to feel, right? It's not true. I think I'm a different kind of tomorrow, for sure. I could never be the same kind of tomorrow as the generations before me. That's wonderful. I think that's wonderful. And, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed about that. Although I sometimes feel ashamed. Whatever. It is so funny that Andrew completely captured the essence of my life in a few minutes. The struggle of being an adult or just an older person, not a child, trying to learn tomorrow when you're surrounded by tomorrow speakers who just, you know, shame you and tease you and they use this tool of our culture that produces compliance to 
keep you. It effectively keeps younger generations from from really trying to learn tomorrow. And it's like a catch-22 because even when you get to the point of learning, because we've had this American, this English influence on ourselves, on our identities, on our everything, it pervades everything. It's like a catch-22. So I love that Andrew just captured that so effectively. Sainama Aussie Andrew, for your important and awesome perspective. Half a day, everyone. Kalani here. I wanted to dive into the topic of language, specifically my interpretation of the Chamorro language, which I'm trying to sort my thoughts out on. They are a bit clouded, but I have something to say. In my language, Chamorros were inclusive from the beginning for all genders. Perhaps not because of the same reasons as today, or perhaps they were. I also don't know that there are words to describe all sexual orientations. I will never know, because... That knowledge is lost to history, and I don't trust colonizers to describe my language to me. Colonial bias has erased so much. We have a range of words in Chamorro to describe different emotions and feelings, but the ones that I grew up hearing definitely tended more towards the things my mom would shout at me and my sisters, so not the most positive words, but that's okay. How fluent am I in my native language of Chamorro? I can understand decently. I would rate my level of understanding at perhaps a 5 or 6 out of 10. My reading, I would rate at about a 4 out of 10, so not great. And for speaking, I would rate myself at about the same or even less, honestly. I grew up listening to my parents and family speaking Chamorro around me and where I grew up in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, also known as the CNMI or NMI. Many of the older generations, like the ones older than millennials, can speak Chamorro easily. However, when it comes to millennials, my generation, Andrew's generation, Trini's generation, and Tomas's generation, I would say there is a gap in knowledge for the ones who left the CNMI, especially to go to college or just to move away, but even the ones that live there. Many of us were raised the same way as me, where they grew up following commands in Chamorro, Hearing your parents speak to other people in Chamorro, hearing Chamorro all around you, but you respond only in English. And I think my parents took for granted that I was immersed in the language on my home island and just never pushed me or my siblings to speak it back. I had previously only spoken Chamorro to my Nang and my Tang, my grandparents, and my great uncles and aunties who understood very little English in comparison to Chamorro or Japanese. On the other hand, I can speak, read, and write English pretty well, I would say anyway. I have a bit of a fluid Chamorro accent when I speak English that is really funny when people try to place it. You maybe can't really tell on this podcast because sometimes I just switch to my customer service voice, but you basically have to be from the CNMI and be able to recognize the accent to place it, or maybe not. I'm not sure. I mentioned in the last episode on identity that family would tease me growing up and call me Americanon Poasu, which Andrew has already covered. A derogatory word to describe a Chamorro who acts or speaks like a white American while not being a white American. So that did form a part of my identity at a critical time, which was in middle school and high school. 
I became the one out of my family who could speak really well. I had my best grades in English, the subject I could put the least amount of effort into and still get A's. In my high school, the oldest and biggest high school in the CNMI, we did not have a class for Chamorro studies or Chamorro language. We did have a Chamorro club though, and they were really awesome. They won awards at the Chamorro language competition on Guam. So how did this influence my identity? I embraced my colonizer's language during that time. I read so many books in English, and at the time there were no books in Chamorro for me to read that were easily accessible. I think that not having those classes, books, and teachers at such a critical time of identity development when I was becoming an adolescent was crippling. So do I have to consciously work towards fluency now? Yes, definitely yes. I attend a free class on Zoom every Saturday offered by Dr. Michael Bavakwa, former professor at the University of Guam, who also co-hosts the Fanyatsu podcast, which I will include a link to in the show notes. And I am immersed in an environment every Saturday where my shame of speaking not fluently is taken down a few notches because I am among those who are learning as adults too, and not just around native or fluent speakers. My language is a beautiful language to hear spoken by others regardless of their accents when speaking. At least they're speaking and using it, as we all should be. We have to remember that we are not America. We have an identity separate from our colonizers. Our islands should reclaim that. People who are visitors or settlers should be seeing our language everywhere. It would go such a far way towards enforcing our own identity if we consciously put up the language everywhere that is public. Not just the airport. On my home island of Saipan, the capital island of the CNMI, other settlers there learn tomorrow too. And growing up, I learned and used a few Filipino words, a few Palawan words, a few Rafalawash words. Not just bad words, I swear. That's how it should be. By embracing our colonizer's language or by embracing whiteness and white ideologies, even progressive ones like we all bleed red or I don't see color or we are all human. We lose the sense of ourselves as individuals. Like fragrant mango trees, we are all different. Did you know that there are over a thousand mango varietals throughout the world? In my islands alone, we have Mongun Karabao, which is Carabao mango, among my favorite. We have the regular kind that grows on my Nang's trees. Currently, I am waiting for a call from the Guam Department of Forestry and Agriculture on what varietal that is. We also have Panama mangoes, which are these big, long, thick-skinned, S-shaped mangoes. We have Hayden mangoes, which are disgusting and generally from Mexico, no offense, Mexicans. And we have Manila mangoes, which are oddly yellow, even when they're unripe. That's very interesting. The fruit we bear is different from other mangoes fruit, but should we cut down the fruit that is different? Or should there be three competing best mangoes in the world? Should our taste buds conform to those three mangoes and judge all others based on how similar they are to those three? Or should we celebrate and appreciate each kind of mango for being different? Our cultures are the same. Shout out to Simone on Twitter because she gave me two bags of mangoes and that is why I'm using this as a reference. I hope that if you are learning your language now or using your language, that you continue to do so. I hope you shout it from your lands. I hope you too want to bring it to new levels of use in your community. 
I hope you feel empowered because the Pacific has thousands of indigenous languages. Biba Pacifica. All right. Such great perspectives. Thank you for joining us Pacific Islanders as we explored our thoughts on our languages and how those languages are like a window into our identity. I turn to you now, my friend. You are listening because you're a Pacific Islander, I assume. What do you think about the languages that have influenced you? How did they affect your identity? Did hearing us speaking about our languages affect your views? Who did you resonate the most with? We would love to hear from you. Tweet us at Deep Pacific Pod with your thoughts. Your tweets will make it to our collective group of islanders. So sign maasi and I thank you for your attention. Up next, we have a tiny essay on indigenous dance and how we can use it to relate to our ancestral past while also allowing us to express ourselves culturally in the present. Stay tuned. All right, so our paper today is entitled When We Dance the Ocean, Does It Hear Us? This was published in 2019 by UC Santa Barbara Journal of Transnational American Studies. This essay was written by Hi'ile Julia Hobart, a writer, researcher, and professor of anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin. Her research is concerned with indigenous studies. This essay captivated my attention, actually, not just because it was short, sweet, and to the point, but because it positioned indigenous dance in a way that I had never really thought of because my culture doesn't have records of our dance. I listened recently to the Fanyatsu podcast, which I will link to in the show notes, on their episode on Chamorro dance because it was a subject of controversy recently and actually has been for quite a long time. Just as Tomas mentioned in this episode about the borrowing of words, Chamorro dance borrows or gains inspiration from other cultural dances in the Pacific. As do all cultural dancers, really, if you think about it. All Oceanian cultures borrow things from each other, whether they be ideas, words, navigational concepts. The two dances the essay analyzed was one commissioned by the Auckland Art Gallery, Yuki Kihara's Siva in Motion. Siva in Motion was composed of a backlit silhouette of the artist wearing a voluminous 19th century morning dress, waist tucked, hair pulled back, and all but her hands and her head covered by fabric. There is no sound, but she does a Samoan Siva, a dance comprised of restrained and delicate hand movements that articulate a story of waves. As she begins to dance, her body multiplies. Soon, she is three, with hands undulating in silence as they catch the light. This restrained femininity is captured. Here, she dances in response to a 2009 tsunami that devastated Samoa, leaving an estimated 189 people dead. As Kiara's gestures compound upon one another, they connect the relentless building of tsunami waves, and yet her body remains centered and controlled. The Tawaluga, which Kiara dances, is a particular dance form premised upon re- relationality. I love the author's interpretation or breakdown of the dance. She explains how the Samoan Siva starts off and 
it usually is just one person and then that person is joined by other people who participate as well and the artistic dance that the author was analyzing was just a single person who multiplied very interesting it put a focus on perhaps our relation to each other or to ourselves the morning dress that the artist was wearing as she did the dance also communicated that suffering that the artist felt when those 189 people died after the tsunami was struck her hands emulating ocean waves became more like tsunami waves and if i were to see this dance i would probably cry probably whereas the other dance mentioned was kalisolaiti uhilas Ongo Me Moana, a live performance which spanned six-hour segments across the span of five days. In it, Uila stands at the ocean's edge wearing a traditional Tongan girdle of ngatu and sea leaves that contrasts with the modern buildings that surround Wellington Harbor's commercial waterfront. The ocean, choppy and grinding, washes up to his feet, and he responds in dialogue, sweeping his arms over themselves as if pulling the waves into him. Uhila describes the combination of oration and traditional Tongan dance that he uses here as a way to conduct the ocean's tides by calling them in. For these artists, dance provides a culturally grounded anchor for theorizing oceanic relationships across time and space, which both connect Pacific Islander communities to one another, as well as anchor specific cultures to their island homes. Apparently, in this dance, Uhila is on the side of the harbor, chanting to the sea, but his voice almost could not be heard above the sound of the waves. So is he chanting to the sea, or is the sea chanting back to him? Uhila's dance focused more on the movement of the ocean and on the sound of the ocean. So, to read how indigenous dance can be seen as a means of connecting dancers to their ancestors, as well as an art form for communicating our present climate crisis was just, wow, my mind was blown. It was reminiscent of the scene from Moana, where she runs away from her village and sees her grandma dancing on the side with the waves and then joins her. Other cultures and people in the Pacific, specifically dancers, know this feeling. I don't. This essay affects Pacific peoples because many cultures in the Pacific have traditional dance that connect them, you know, to their gods, to their ancestors, to the ocean, or other concepts. And these dances are, quote, useful and ancient affirmations of who we are and how we are, end quote. Here's another quote. Traditional dance thereby communicates with audiences, environment, and ancestors in ways that acknowledge the present while preserving the past. Wow. My opinion? Dance is important. Cultural creative expression is just so important. It allows a deeper understanding if you're passionate about creating something, and if you integrate your indigenous culture into that, especially using an art form ancestors also used. I imagine that must feel so invigorating and maybe like somewhat wistful. What I said earlier about poetry being a beautiful means to communicate suffering also stands with dance. Pacifica people are the most likely to be first affected as well as the most affected by climate change. 
These two dances mentioned in this essay were ways of people to communicate this suffering, this change. Climate change is and has been upon us, and the steps that we take today buy us time with our land, our Venua, our Fenua, Itanota. I think this essay was definitely a nice departure from the scientific papers I normally read. It gave me an appreciation for traditional dance, which seems almost foreign to me as a non-dancer from a culture that has little to no records of dance as a form of expression. But like, what else did ancient Chamorros do? I am pretty sure they must have had some sort of dance. It's very interesting to think about these art forms and how they can communicate our present by using our past. Both of these dances were based upon the premise of climate change. Natural disasters are going to become more common because of climate change. Like I said, it is and has been upon us. And the steps that we take today buy us time with our land. Definitely something to think about. All right. My friend, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening to the second episode of Deep Pacific, a Pacifica podcast featuring Islander views and voices. I mentioned earlier that now with coronavirus restrictions easing, we will be back to publishing episodes every two weeks. So our next episode will be later this month because it's Pride Month. If you are interested in any of the resources we mentioned in the episode, Find them in our show notes on our website, which we will link everywhere we can. We are so excited to hear what you have to say about us. Find us on Twitter at Deep Pacific Pod or the website deeppacific.org. Remember, no www. Or wherever you get your podcast. The last episode we did on identity ties in deeply with this episode, and we will continue to look within ourselves at our Pacific Islander identities to help us understand ourselves and our cultures a bit better and to strive for meaningful positive change. I think now is the age of introspection and if we knew why we do things, then we can really begin to understand how best to bring our cultures up and bring them into the future with us. For the next episode, like I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, we have not forgotten that it is Pride Month. We are extremely excited to feature this topic as our next episode on Deep Pacific. We will be exploring culture, gender, and sexuality, and I am so excited to devote time to something that is so important to so many, including myself as an ally. LGBTQ plus Indigenous Pacifica and Queer Pacifica deserve a spotlight, and I hope to bring that to you. We are also currently working on our first bonus episode, which we will announce more on our Twitter at Deep Pacific Pod and our website as we develop the episode. What is the difference between bonus episodes and regular episodes? These bonus episodes, they are there to accomplish those really deep dives. And I hope that we will get down into the uncomfortable trenches and issues and conversations that we need to be having within our cultures to better ourselves, our lives, our futures, and we can publish them whenever we want. Biba, Biba Pacifica. Sayonara Aussie for listening. See you next time.